0: Greetings, humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science, a podcast where I meet interesting people from the world of science and I try to understand what, how, and why they do what they do. I am Lefteris. I have a PhD from the Department of Mechanical Engineering of National University of Singapore, and with the help of people from all around the world of science, I'm going to try and understand solar cells particle physics, human psychology and biology, basically anything that tickles my brain. Simple concepts, right? Sure. Especially when we discuss a paper like a brain-wide functional map of the serotonergic responses to acute stress and fluoxetine. Nope, I'm gonna need some help to understand this, and for that I met Dr. Jean Ronjean, Dr. Ranjon obtained his Master's in Neuroscience and PhD in Biomedical Engineering from ETH in Zurich in Switzerland, where he pioneered mouse resting state functional imaging. He joined the Singapore Bioimaging Consortium in ASTAR in 2016 as a Research Fellow and is now at the Donders Institute and Radiology Department at Radboud University Medical Center in the Netherlands. Dr. Anjan has been one of the first actors in the field of resting state imaging in the mouse and has published on the topic of Alzheimer's disease and depressive disorder. He is currently leading a consortium involving the major preclinical MRI labs and compare and improve and standardize functional imaging in rodents. Now all of that to someone who has been around bioengineering, neuroscience or even just science might sound easy to follow but let's take things slowly. The brain is the central organ for the human nervous system. Everyone has nerves and they all end or begin at the brain. That's a simple definition, maybe even too simple if anyone working in the field is actually listening to this. The brain is a complex organ and there are still a lot of things that we can find out about it. Especially when it comes to Alzheimer's, mental illness and depression, there are still a lot of complex chemical interactions happening in the brain, and by understanding them, there's a chance that we can help people with issues that plague modern societies and that they degrade human existence itself. To start with, there's one major problem with studying the brain. It's enclosed inside your head, and there's no real way to study the chemical interactions in an active brain without opening someone's head, and, as you can assume, there's not a big list of people that want to volunteer for that. Here is Dr. Grandjean explaining this.
1: That's one of the big issues in neuroscience. If you are working in hepatology or hematology, well, people might give away some sample of blood or whatever, or a piece of skin. But if you talk about the brain, it only makes sense to study in living organism um, because that's when the brain is working and if we want to learn about it but you cannot remove biopsies and, and probes. So how do you approach it? So to study the brain in humans, we have to rely on non-invasive imaging, where we put humans in high field magnets and send some radio frequencies that are non-ionizing and that do not damage or alter the tissue in any way or form. And that has allowed us to gain huge understanding of how the brain works.
0: So, non-invasive techniques have been developed in order to study the brain. However, there is still one issue that makes scientists work with animals. In order to treat patients with depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, we still don't know exactly how chronic stress or trauma leads to these conditions. So scientists create larger theories, replicate them in animals, and then they try to work out the mechanisms.
1: The highlight of our research is that we use the same tools and methodologies as we find in humans. So we use magnetic resonance imaging, which is used in humans to do imaging of the brain, but we do it in rodents, in mice in particular. And working with mice allow us then to make some manipulations um, so to test causal elements that we couldn't do. So uh, in one of our latest research, we manipulated a set of neurons which are called um, serotonin neurons which are found in the back of the brain in a tiny region of the brain called the dorsal raphe nucleus and this is the hotspot for serotonin and this is what we think is one of the key region that controls uh, aspect of depression because serotonin is implicated in depression but not only um, And so we found a way to uh, causally manipulate and release serotonin while the animals were undergoing scanning of the brain. And so we were able for the first time to get a 3D map of the brain activation upon the release of serotonin. Um, But the nice thing afterward is that we can start playing with different uh, drugs. Uh, Serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are antidepressant and see what it means uh, when you give antidepressants, how does it change the brain activity patterns across the brain. In another example, we also stress the animals. So to achieve that, we put the animals in a, in a small uh, container for an hour, an hour and a half. And you can think if you're human, when you're locked in an elevator, hopefully it never happened to me and maybe not to you as well, but you, you can picture it. If you're locked in an elevator for three to four hours this is a very stressful event Um, and then right after stressing our animals we could put them in the scanner again releasing serotonin and get maps of the of the brain to see how that stress affected uh, the serotonin response throughout the whole brain
0: serotonin plays an important role in this research it is a neurotransmitter that basically transmits information related to mood, sexual desire, function of appetite, sleep, and memory, among other things.
1: Um, for instance, at the moment, we treat patients with depression with serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, um, but we don't know why that works. And according to what we know about depression, there's no indication that it ought to work. So, that, so that's, it, that's the thing, which is really weird. So, so there's a huge divide between what we know about the brain and, and what we'd like to know.
0: So we know that serotonin plays a role in all of the things above, but then why is it so hard for people that suffer from a depression to feel better after taking the meds?
1: Serotonin has many fantastic properties, but one of that which seems to emerge is that depending where it is being released, it leads to completely different effects. There are studies in mice that shows if it's released in the cortex, which is the modern part of the brain, it has antidepressant properties. But if it's released in subcortical regions, such as the, the amygdala, which is a hotbed that controls emotions, it promotes anxiety. And so having treatments like serotonin reuptake inhibitors that target serotonin across the whole brain might not have the desired effect because uh, they might also promote anxiety, which in fact they do. So So we try now to understand how different projections of the serotonin system, so where serotonin is being released, how it mediates different effects related to reward and to punishment. And if we have a better understanding of that, then we can start working on the pharmacology. The nice thing about serotonin, or the bad thing about it, is that there are about 14 receptors in the brain that receives serotonin and mediates the signal. So out of these 14, uh, if we ha- if we know better how it works, then we can really target uh, brain regions more specifically. Hopefully, promoting the antidepressive effects of serotonin while mitigating the anxiogenic, so the, the parts that really uh, would be stressful.
0: The end results and benefits from a research like that are obvious. However, a lot of research happening looks to develop tools in order to start the eventual study. Optogenetics and chemogenetics involve the genetical modification of the neurons so that they respond to light or a chemical. And while these techniques have been developed and used in animals in order to study the mechanisms of some brain functions, Dr. Grandjean has two fascinating examples to explain how they work or would work in humans.
1: Chemogenetics uh, offers a very interesting alternative to deep brain stimulation. So for instance, when you have Parkinsonism or severe depression, in cases where the patients are treatment resistant, the last resort would be to go and stick electrodes into the brain in specific regions and provide electrical current. And this has worked fantastically uh, to help patients with uh, Parkinson's disease, but also people with depression. Um, and the results are quite spectacular. But that means having to live the rest of your life with electrodes implanted in the brain. And so people think it's a better idea to maybe inject viruses locally in the brain into these regions and then ask the patients to take a very safe and effective drugs that would only modulate the activity of these neurons, either to silence them or to activate them a bit more if they're, if they're lacking. So. So this is one way how these technologies that we use in the mice to test mechanisms could also be used in humans um, for treatments. Then other examples, so optogenetics. The problem with optogenetics, so it's a technology where we use light to activate ion channels that are located in the membranes of cells. Originally, this comes from alga, and alga want to swim toward the light so that they can do more photosynthesis. So they developed ion channels that are sensitive to light. So when there is light, these ion channels open, it lets ions flow through into the cells and that helps the cell guide toward the light. But what people did is they took these channels and you can put them in neurons and then therefore we can hijack neurons. Now. The idea is that we light would not penetrate deep into the brain, but there are peripheral nerves throughout our body. Some of them, for instance, mediate pain signaling. And so in case chronic pain is a debilitating disorder, uh, but you could, in theory, or oh, actually there are clinical trials ongoing where you would uh, transfect these nerve fibers. And then when you feel chronic pain, then you could actually just shine light onto these fibers um, through the skin. And then that would uh, inhibit uh, the signal transduction from your body parts to your brain. And so that would alleviate uh, chronic pain, for instance.
0: And that's to show how complex the interactions in our brains are. So studies like the ones being done by Dr. Coranjean and his team are initial steps in order to link brain functions in animals and humans. Collaboration between neuroscientists and cognitive neuroscientists and pharmacologists will help the further development of this research.
1: Working with human data and human samples is is a nice thing, working with animals. And I think all of these have to be combined in a seamless way. I think, I mean, just working with animals is not enough. Now we have amazing resources also to identify new targets in humans. Uh, The problem, for instance, is there's so much viability in humans, it requires enormous data sets. I'm thinking, for instance, there are uh, initiatives in the UK, for instance, called the UK Biobank initiatives, where hundreds of thousands of people um, have agreed to give a sample for DNA testing, as well as going to MRI scanner to get images of the brain being taken, undergo very careful questionnaires and and answer things about their moods and, and their consumptions. And I think only when you start gathering data from hundreds and thousands of people can you start identifying what are genetic variations that are supporting specific brain disorders once you find them then of course it's important to start working with animals again to try to see what these mutations mean and what they do to the brain and then the next thing is how we can act on them but for neuroscience and science in general to work you really have to consider all the options um, just from neuroinformatics so it's just database mining uh, working with animals um, and working with humans and the problem there is, everyone speaks a very different language. So, have people who, like me, who sit in the middle, who works with animals but with technologies also found in humans, is very, in my opinion, hopefully, beneficial because I, I can help make the link uh, between communities that usually speak different scientific language.
0: And while we think that since there are a lot of people working on such problems, so the solution should be found fast, right? But the fact that there's a large amount of variance and the fact that even 10 years ago we knew much, much less about the brain makes it hard to develop solutions fast.
1: I think I've been working as a researcher for the past 10 years. And what I realized is what I did for the past 10 years is setting up the tools that I need. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... Well, I moved to a new institution in the Netherlands uh, where I'm surrounded with cognitive neuroscientists. And now we're actually working to apply these tools to really address the questions that cognitive neuroscientists working with serotonin in the brain in humans would like to address in terms of working out the mechanisms. So, in a sense, I'm just starting. <laughs> in a sense, it's always been what science has been about, that new technologies then change how we view things. And because it changed how we view things, it allows us to advance science. And then these advancements lead us to more questions for which we need new tools and so And that goes on and on again. I mean, before the microscope was invented, we didn't know that what cells were. We didn't know that cells existed. And that might be, for instance, the beginning of cell biology. Um, But then once you knew about cells, then you had to understand the working of the cells. And so you needed a lot more new technologies like uh, genetic engineering sequencing to understand, for instance, the genetics behind these. So everything works at a certain pace. And and there are key technologies that sometimes emerge, like these technologies that I've used to control neuronal activity. These came out uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, And that has allowed neuroscientists to progress very quickly. I think the next evolution for neuroscientists, at least, is to not start working, not work in isolation in their own labs as they used to in the past, but start working also together and pulling resources. Um, So for that reason, we make all of our work available online for people to uh, use the data that we've generated to ask other questions. Uh, and if a lot of labs start doing that then you start having not just data and expertise about from your own lab but you also have access to resources from all the labs in the world and that allows that might allow us to make the next uh, switch in evolution in in science to allow us to really advance
0: With Dr. Grandjean, we had a long discussion about mental illness and his opinion about open science and how that would help the progress of the human race. But that's a tale for another day. And that's the first edition of Lefteres Ask Science. I hope you learned something that, at best, will give you some guidance about your future web search sessions. I would like to thank Dr. Grandjean for his time and also Francesca Mandino for the introduction. I hope to see you again and until next time, take care and be kind.